Welcome back to the podcast. This is Charlotte, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. And today we are continuing our series, The Road to Emmaus Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament, and we are in episode nine. As always, this program is supported by listeners just like you. If you'd like to help support this broadcast and help us keep it free, you can donate at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And here is Michael in The Road to Emmaus Messianic Prophecies of the Old Testament, episode nine. Welcome to Evidence for Faith again. Um, so glad you're joining us. It's me, Michael Lane. I'm your host as we are continuing our series here called The Road to Emmaus. These are the Old Testament or Old Covenant prophecies dealing with the Messiah. And today we're going to start an, another book in uh, the Old Covenants. We're still in the, the Pentateuch of uh, the Torah. And uh, today, number 29, this will be the 29th major prophecy we've come across, and it's in the book of Numbers. So looking at Numbers now, as we get into Numbers and Deuteronomy, um, there's not as much as what we've seen like with Genesis and Exodus. Um, they start to get a little bit more sparse as we move through things. But as we get into uh, the book of Numbers today, there's some really interesting prophecies that you see in the book of Numbers. and. I hope you're following along. Maybe you have a notebook you're following with and taking notes on this. Uh, that's great if you are. If not, you're just enjoying it as you're riding your car or just maybe doing some work around the house or whatever. Or maybe you're on the job and you just have this running in the background or whatever. I'm so glad you're joining me and God bless you for joining me. And I hope you are learning and getting something out of this. And most importantly, that you get to realize uh, the truth that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the sought after Messiah, who has prophesied hundreds of, of uh, years before he ever made an appearance in Bethlehem uh, with his birth, as we celebrate in the beginning of uh, the um, New Testament book of Matthew, and then again in Luke. But as we're in the Old Testament, again, we're in the book of Numbers. This was written by Moses. The date for this being written is around 1400... 50, 1450 BC, somewhere in there. Moses didn't actually put a date on it, but we know roughly from the biblical timeline given to us um, in certain aspects of the Old Covenant, we get an idea of when Moses uh, and the Exodus took place. And we know this is all taking place at the Exodus because Moses is writing this down as he is instructed many times by God, write this down. So this is not oral tradition. This is not something that was made up centuries later and carried on. This is exactly being written down as it is occurring. And God is very explicit about that and making this very, very clear for us. So with that, if, you, if you're joining along, we're on number, uh, number 29 in the book of Numbers. And the passage that we're looking at today is Numbers chapter 24, and it's verses 17 through 19. So this is, again, Prophecy 29, Numbers chapter 24, verses 17 through 19. And I'm entitling this one, The Star and the Scepter. The Star and the Scepter. But you're going to see there's 
some really interesting things in this little prophecy. To set the scene for you, um, this is part of Balaam's fourth oracle. Now, Balaam was the guy, you might recall, he's the guy who had the talking donkey, the guy um, who God allows his donkey to speak to him um, because Balaam, who is a money grubber, um, a seer, as he's often called, um, even in scripture, he's called a seer. Uh, he was a prophet, and some people refer to him as a prophet of God, but he was not a good prophet. Matter of fact, he was not, he seems to be a seer for many gods, but um, he definitely at certain points had knowledge of the true God, and he is brought down um, by the Midianites and stuff too, um, to curse the the chosen people of all things. And at first he refuses to do it, but as you know how the story goes, he's he's overcome by the temptation of money. And so he goes because of that. And he makes certain oracles, certain promises, um, certain statements under the influence of God at this point, because he's sort of learned his um, that, that God has made it plain to him, hey, you only speak what I'm, you're, you're disobeying me, and you're going to go here and you're going to say this. You do exactly what I say, or even worse is going to come to you. And it does come, he ends up with a very bad ending, um, this, this guy, the seer, because he is actually killed by the same people he is sent to curse. But what ends up happening is he blesses them. God says, you're not going to curse them. You're going to bless them because I have chosen to bless them. So in this, when he's prophesying again under the influence of God concerning Israel and starting um, in uh, verse 17, in Numbers 24, verse 17, and we're going to read through 19. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemy, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing um, valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. Now, that's where the thing ends. But it, actually, it goes on down through verse 24. It goes all the way almost to the end of this chapter. There's more things talking about, and we're going to bring up a couple of those. But as we go to this, right here, we've already mentioned a couple of key references concerning the Messiah when he comes, that he was not going to arise at that time. He's going to arise not in the near future, but much further back. As I said, historians say that this was written around 1400, um, 1450 BC, somewhere in there, somewhere in that range. And it says, not now, not now. Um, I see him, but not now. And this is talking about somebody who's going to come. It's, it's definitely Moses um, and the Israelites are standing down in this valley below. Balaam is saying this, and somebody is coming, but not now. Out of looking over the whole nation of Israel, Someone, they already got Moses as a leader, but someone's coming. And this is towards the end of the Exodus. So this might be around 1400 BC in that range. But uh, just before Moses dies and, and Joshua takes over and stuff, that's when this is taking place at the end of the Exodus. But the whole point is somebody's coming and it's not now. That, that Verse 17 makes this very clear. He would not appear until, and then you start seeing certain nations that are mentioned that these nations have to come and go before 
this one who's coming, this, this star uh, with a scepter, a scepter means a ruler. So this ruler, this king, this, this Messiah is going to come, but not after certain kingdoms come and go. Now, I, I read you part of these. It talks about Edom and Seir, and, you know, it says that um, from Jacob. But if I want to I go back to the scripture itself here for a second, because it talks about other places. Um, and you get down to verse 24. So this is Numbers 24, verse 24, and it gives us something very interesting for the timeline, as we're going to see. It says in verse 24, but ships shall come from Kittim, and shall afflict Ashur and Eber, and he too shall come to utter destruction. So, Kittim, that's interesting, because what, well, a lot of people wonder, well, what in the world is Kittim? Kittim, if you go back and you study ancient history, uh, Kittim is a kingdom. It has other names, but it's a kingdom that is mentioned in the Bible, and what it is, it's a Greek state. It existed from 312 B.C. Um, until 63 B.C. And it started with the Seleucid Empire, and it's another name for it was the Seleucid Empire. Seleucid Empire. It's the same thing as Kittim. And who was founded by uh, Seleucus I Nicator, who was uh, one of the divisional leaders, um, generals of Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great died, his Macedonian empire was divided into certain sections. Well, certain generals took certain parts. One of them was Seleucus the, um, the first, and he took it and became what's called the Seleucid Empire, and it composed Syria and the Holy Land. That's the area he had, and it was a Greek state. It was Hellenized. Alexander, that was one of the contributions he made to the world as he gave everybody the, uh, in the world that he conquered the language of Greek and also Greek culture. And it became very prominent. Even the Hebrew people started to learn Greek. They even translated the Old Covenant from Hebrew into Greek. We call that the Septuagint, which you can still um, study and have copies of. I have one sitting right behind me on my bookshelf right now that I use frequently. And it's the Old Testament in, in Greek. And so that's one of the things about um, Alexander that he did. He what's called Hellenized the world. And in this case, this empire, the Seleucid Empire, ran from 312 BC, so after the death of Alexander, until 63 BC. What happened in 63 BC? That's when the Roman general Pompey came down from the north and conquered this land. And it became then like a, a Roman satellite state. That's when the Romans came. And Pompey, if you'll recall, he is um, uh, related in marriage, actually, to um, Julius Caesar. He's one of the key people in the Roman um, world at that point. Um, he goes down um, to Egypt. He's actually killed there. Uh, Julius Caesar takes revenge upon the killing, even though they were fighting Alexander and Pompey. But Alexander takes... Um, um, vengeance on the Egyptians who killed Pompey um, and beheaded him. And then after Alexander the Great, you have, of course, Mark Antony. Mark Antony is a contemporary of Herod the Great. Uh, very, they were very close friends. And um, then, of course, Herod the Great, when he dies, that's when the Messiah was born. So you see, this is all fitting time-wise. So when it says in Balaam's prophecy that who's coming, this, this ruler who's coming, will not come until Kittim, that is the Seleucid Empire, is going to fall. And that happens 
during the time of Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, and then enters in right after this, Herod the Great. So it all fits time-wise. Isn't this cool? Isn't this exciting how this just fits when you understand and study what's going on here? I mean, th- th- this just blows my mind sometimes. How accurate this this whole scripture thing, uh, all the scriptures are. And the thing is, this is written 1,400 years roughly before this ever takes place. This is amazing. And it happens exactly, you know, all this is falling into place exactly as God said it would. Now, there's, that was the first point I wanted to make in, in this passage here called the star and the scepter. The second point is, well, we said star. He is going to be like a star. Now, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus himself ref- refers to himself as the bright morning star. We have songs that we sing about it. There's some hymns about that. He's the bright and morning star. That's a term for it. Matter of fact, it says, uh, I'll, I'll read you the passage. I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, right here. Now, Balaam is saying, giving a title for this Messiah who's coming, calling him a star. Jesus claims to be the morning star. He is the morning star. He is the light of salvation to all fallen men. Now, some theologians, actually many theologians, and I tend to agree with them on this, that this is one of the key passages used by the Magi to know the Messiah is going to be born. It talks about a star, that his star will rise and um, his star will be there. I see his star, a star coming, coming out of Jacob, out of Israel. The Magi, the wise men in the Christmas story would have had this passage because they studied the uh, the Old Testament uh, books and stuff like this. Many of them, at least the Torah, we know of for certain that they studied this. Um, and so they used this passage here to know that the Messiah's gospel is coming. They would have known, there's no question in their mind, that they would know the kingdom of Kittim. And Kittim had to fall first. Well, it fell in 63. Now we know that, oh, wow, this prophecy is telling us after the fall of this Greek state, the Messiah is going to come and he'll be signaled by a star. He's referenced as a star. And then all of a sudden, here comes this angelic star um, very soon afterwards. So the Magi having access to this, um, and, and Matthew is the one who recall uh, recounts all this. It's the only place you find is in Matthew, um, where Matthew is showing the kingship of the Messiah. That's the purpose of one of the key, I won't say purpose, but it's one of the key themes throughout his gospel is how the Messiah how Jesus is the king. And so the birth of this king is very important. Matthew is going to cover this. And so it's a reference you see in the gospel. A third point I want to make about this passage is he will be mighty. It says that he will be mighty. He's going to, a scepter. He, he's going to have a scepter. He's, he's going to break down and destroy things, uh, nations and stuff, the enemy, if you will. And, and Jesus came, as it says here, he's going to be victorious over his enemies. He will crush, is the words that's being used. He will crush um, the forehead of Moab. Now, what's interesting again is when this occurred. When Jesus came just after the Romans had destroyed Moab and were just in the process of destroying the last remnants of Edom. Both these countries are talked about in here that both these countries had to fall before the Messiah would come. And that's exactly what we see happening. I mean, how cool is that? 
That is so interesting and so amazing to see how this all fits absolutely perfectly. So that's the main, uh, the primary messianic prophecies that you find in the book of Numbers. Um, as we said, there's a couple of other ones that talk about feasts and, and, um, and other things that we talked about in previous lessons. We're not going to go back into those because we've already covered them. So we're going to move on now to the next major messianic prophecy that we haven't covered yet. And this is going to be number 30. And now we're in the book of Deuteronomy. So the last book of the Torah, um, the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy is going to be this book. And this is number 30. If you're keeping numerical um, sequence of all these major prophecies, we're at number 30 now. Um, and we're going to be looking in this one in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy. And starting at verse 14 is where we're going to see this one taking place. It's actually 14 through 22 that we're going to see this taking place. Now, again, what's going on here to set the scene um, is this is coming towards the end of the Exodus. So um, we're going to see a major prophecy here. And I mean, this is a biggie that has been misinterpreted by other religions. But if you look at this very clearly, it, it's it's so, so succinct. It's, it's so simple. It's so easy to see how Jesus fulfills this. So it's number 30 and chapter 18, verses 14 through 22, and I'm entitling this, A Prophet Like Moses. A Prophet Like Moses. So, question, what was the Messiah going to be like? Obviously, the Jews had it all mixed up. They were looking for a wrong type of Messiah. They were looking for a victorious warrior judge king. They were looking for this. But they were also knowledgeable about some other things, in particular, this prophecy. And this, because this is brought up a number of times in the New Testament. So in this one, um, in number 30 here, a prophet like Moses gives us an idea of what the Messiah would be like when he came. So it's an Old Testament scripture giving us a great description um, that Jesus actually fits perfectly. Um, as we read through this, I'm going to read this prophecy, 14 through 22, of Deuteronomy chapter 18. And as we go through this, just think about how Jesus fulfills this. So starting here, it says, talk, talks about, for these nations which you are about to dispose, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will rise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded, uh, commanded him to speak of, or he speaks in the name of other gods, or that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how many will we know? How, how may we know uh, the word of the Lord? 
has not spoken. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or comes true, that is a word that the Lord has spoken, has not, has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it um, premonstuously. You need not be afraid of him. So this is talking about Moses is specifically saying who's coming. And you'll know if he's the right one because everything he's going to say will, will be true. If somebody comes along and says, hey, uh, I'm the Messiah or something like this, and it doesn't come out true, you know it's not him. So that's the thing about all this having to do with Jesus, because everything he said came true. Um, it's amazing. But that first, uh, first verse here, looking at verse 15, For the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Thus, the Messiah would be a prophet as well as a king, like we just saw before, but he's going to be a prophet. That's what this states. And even in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 34, if we skip over to chapter 34 for a moment and see something interesting here, starting at uh, verse 10, um, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord, Lord knew face to face. I mean, that's, that's an amazing statement. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord said to, uh, sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all the servants and to all the land. And all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So Moses is a miracle worker. I mean, we see that. He did tremendous, tremendous things. So, but you notice that it says the word prophet. The prophet so um, we've, we've seen just before in the prophecy before, it's going to be a scepter, a ruler, a king. This time he's being called not just is he a king, he is a prophet. And you know something? Jesus was called this. The Messiah was actually called this. He's called the prophet. But some may argue, and I've heard this a number of times, that this is not a messianic prophecy. Some will say this is talking about Joshua, that this is Joshua being described here. Um, that he is the prophet who's going to come forth. Um, now, there's a lot of reasons that is not true. Because one, Joshua is already present. And as we've seen, the person who's coming after Moses to do all this, this messianic thing, is not there yet. Because as Balaam says, I see him, but not now. He's, he's not around. So we're not seeing the... Um, this prophet, and, and, and it even says in verse 15, will raise up for you a prophet uh, like me from among you, from your brothers. It's very likely, I mean, it's very possible that Joshua is the guy who's writing this down. But anyway, Joshua is standing there, and because of that, it can't be him, because he's standing right there as all this is taking place. So, uh, and, and some will say, well, this is talking about um, I will give you this. The Muslims, they say that they use this prophecy for the prophet Muhammad. Well, this can't be Muhammad. There's no way possible this can be Muhammad. Why? Because it says that among your brothers. This is out of Jacob. Muhammad um, comes from not the line of Jacob. Um, that's, that's, you know, Ishmael. Um, so it, it's not from the line of Ishmael. This is from the line of Jacob, um, not Esau, not Ishmael. It's from uh, Jacob. 
And so this has to be somebody who is going to be one of the 12 tribes. And if we've already seen so many prophecies, it's got to be from the tribe of Judah. So this is going to be a Jew. It's so easy. So it's not. Though often, you know, how many times, have, I'm sure you've all heard, that um, in Islam, they refer to Muhammad as the prophet. This is where they get that. They take this prophecy. But that cannot be because this is talking, Moses is saying, from uh, a prophet like me from among you. And Muhammad was not this big, massive miracle worker. Um, not at all. This does not fit him. But this does fit Jesus, the Messiah. It does. Now, the Old Testament says that no other prophet, in that passage I read you in chapter 34, no other prophet can be compared to Moses. Thus, anyone coming after with power and authority, um, like what Moses possessed uh, and showed, has to be the Messiah. Well, you might be wondering, well, wait a minute, what about Elisha? What about Elijah? Well, they weren't quite. When you start comparing miracles and stuff, and also what Moses did compared to them, Moses was a teacher, and neither Elijah or Elisha were basically teachers. Um, Moses gave law um, and a covenant. Um, neither one of those prophets did this, but Jesus did. Jesus institutes the new covenant. Um, the people of Jesus' day even recognized all this. They caught this. If you take a look at John chapter 6, verse 14, uh, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, this is Jesus after he just did a miracle and stuff, the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. How about that? The Jews were actually catching this. That, and they actually start, they see Jesus perform a major miracle. They say, oh, must be a prophet. It's not only there. Look in the next chapter, John chapter 7, verse 40. Jesus just gets done feeding 5,000 people with like a happy meal, a miracle compared with very similar. And they even make the comparison with Moses and manna. Jesus does this because it says in John seven forty, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And what did Jesus do a lot of times? He's teaching. Where? In the temple. He's a teacher. He's being spoke of um, as the source of living water. Uh, another miracle that is very similar to what Moses does. Moses uh, strikes rocks and, and water comes forth. Jesus says, I am the, the, the source of living water. So we see both things. There's some, oh, we could go on and on and on. There's many comparisons that you can see. Or how about, as I said, how about the, just the comparison of the prophet being a teacher? That he will teach the people? You will learn from him? That means he's a teacher? Moses was a teacher. Um, even the woman at the well caught this. Because she said that and went back into her city and told everybody, hey, come meet the guy who, who just told me and taught me about my life and stuff. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one who's coming? Even they were catching it. The Samaritans. Because that's in, in John chapter 4, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. In other words, he will teach us. Where are they getting this information? From Deuteronomy. Because the Messiah will be not just a major miracle worker, he will also be a teacher. So that's what we see with all this. It's so important that even the Samaritans caught it. And by the way, the Samaritans didn't keep all of the Old Covenant books as sacred. They only kept the first five. Deuteronomy is one of the books that the Samaritans also used. Thus, the Samaritans, looking for their Messiah, 
were also looking for this prophet. The same thing. They were looking for the same thing. You know, another great witness of this, that Jesus is this um, the person being mentioned here in Deuteronomy, and it comes from no one, no one other than Peter. In Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26, let's read that, follow through, or just listen to me to read this, and think about what we just covered in this prophecy. This is when G, uh, Peter and John just healed the lame man who's been lame all his life, um, and they're in the temple. And it says, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's Astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety we have made this man walk? The, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of all of you. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as, you, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, and the times of refreshing may come to you from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus, whom the heaven must receive until now, is uh, for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servants, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So what we're seeing here, Peter's quoting, right in the middle of this, the key point of his sermon is the prophecy from Deuteronomy and how Jesus fulfilled it. That is an amazing thing. I mean, that text there, that, that Peter says, the the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and everything he tells you. That is amazing. This proves that Jesus alone is the prophet. It's not Muhammad. Muhammad is not coming from that, that chain of lines of, of genealogies that Moses mentioned either. Because he mentions um, these different uh, patriarchs of, of the, the Jewish faith. Because he, he says um, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and all this. He's giving these names. Muhammad doesn't fit, except for Abraham, he doesn't fit any of these things. So it's that is not right. This proves Jesus is the prophet. And 
to reject him, they still incurse the curse of Moses, who predicted his coming and commanded the people to accept him. Now, the Jewish leaders knew all this. That's why in John chapter 6, verses 30 through 33, they challenged Jesus to perform a miracle. They are understanding Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. They catch it. The Jewish leaders are catching it. So in John chapter 30 through 33, they say, what miraculous sign will you give? And then they go on and they say a few more things, talking about Moses. And they say, Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. So we see that right here. And so they're wanting Jesus to duplicate what? One of Moses's miracles. They see the connection here. Jesus responded, it wasn't it, that it was God who gave it to him. It wasn't Moses that provided it. Moses was just the agent. The, the substance came from God. So we can see from this that the Jewish leaders were, in fact, looking for a prophet that would carry out the miracles of Moses. Many imposters would come and go. Matter of fact, in the first century alone, Josephus, the famous Jewish historian in his books, uh, his book called The Antiquities of the Jews, chapter 5, he writes this, quote, Now it came to pass that while Phaedus was procurator of Judea, that a certain magician whose name was Theudas persuaded a great part of the people to take their effects with them and follow him to the river Jordan. For he told them that he was a prophet and that he would, by his own command, divide the river and afford them easy passage over it, unquote. You see what this Theodos was saying is he was claiming to be the Messiah, the prophet, this claiming this prophecy here from Deuteronomy, and that he was going to duplicate. To do this, he had to duplicate what Moses did. So he's going to go down and part the, you know, the sea, and, or in this case, the, the Jordan River, and it didn't work. And if you continue reading the thing, um, the historical account about this guy, this fake Messiah's followers eventually, very quickly, after this dispersed because the, the miracle didn't happen and the Romans captured uh, Theodos himself and they, they beheaded him. Um, but this goes to show, the point I'm making here, the Jews were indeed expecting to find the Messiah to be like a prophet similar to Moses. Another witness of this passage pertains to Jesus found in John chapter 1 verse 45. It's in the opening chapter of John's Gospel, Philip goes and finds Nathanael after meeting Jesus. And it says in verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. But you notice that even Philip, he's not no Bible scholar at this point, but he knows enough, has learned enough in synagogue and stuff that the Messiah when he comes has to be um, the, would be the one that Moses talks about here. And again, we see um, that reference. And that's not the only one. Uh, Jesus himself compares himself with Moses. Continuing in John, you go to chapter 3, um, and you have uh, the beginning uh, in chapter 3, Jesus sitting with Nicodemus, the head teacher of all the Jews. And in chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus makes the comparison also of himself to Moses. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And even later on, when Jesus is being challenged uh, by the Jewish leaders, he says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Jesus is no doubt making a reference right to this. You see, Moses, in a way, is a forerunner of the Messiah. In five distinct ways in particular, five ways. One, Moses enjoyed intimate communication with God. 
I mean, we see this in Deuteronomy 34.10, and there was not, uh, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. That's pretty intimate, um, knowing the Lord face to face. And Moses was like this. Well, of course, Jesus was like this. Number two, Moses was a miracle worker, as we've been talking about. And like I say, sure, Elijah, Elijah, those guys were miracle workers too. But I'm going to show, let me, let me point out something to you. Elijah and Elisha, they did tremendous miracles. But you ever notice, list down their miracles, you will see something. Almost all of them, most of them, not all, but most of their miracles were done on, shall we say, a private scale. Most were. Moses, almost everything he did, it was always on a national scale. Moses did private, but he also did national. Jesus primarily did both sides too. He did both private, he's done universal, universal miracles. I mean, saving us, wow, what a universal miracle. Number three, Joseph, or Moses was a mediator between holy God and the people. We've already covered that. And as we've already seen, Jesus is the perfect mediator between the holy God and fallen man. Read the book of Hebrews, you see this distinctly written out. Number four, Moses was a lawgiver, was he not? He gave us the old covenant. Mm-hmm. Moses set the old covenant in place, yet Jesus sets the new covenant in place. He even talks about that in the communion service. This blood is the new covenant. And so we're seeing a new covenant taking place and what we commonly call the New Testament, new covenant. So Jesus sets this one in order. Both of them are covenant setters. How cool is that? Number five, this one's pretty easy too. Moses was the deliverer. Matter of fact, in these movies like the Ten Commandments and stuff, he's often called in there, the deliverer, the deliverer. Yeah, it's, he's called that because he led the people. He delivered them out of the bondage of slavery. Well, Jesus is a deliverer too. Jesus leads us out of the bondage of uh, sin. I mean, there's a few other parables. If you really sit and do a major study on this, this is fascinating. Just to give you a couple other little tidbits here, just, just interesting points. Don't have to make a lot out of these, just interesting points. Moses was in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days. Hmm, interesting. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 16, we find Moses delegating 70 elders to do work. Yet in Luke chapter 10, we see Jesus... Uh, delegating 70 evangelists to go out and spread the gospel. Hmm. Both have 70. Uh, Moses appeared in a cloud on Mount Sinai, Mount Oreb, Mount Sinai. He appears in a cloud. Jesus transfigures in a cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration. And most importantly, the people must listen to Moses. We must listen to Jesus. So, there are some really interesting things that we've covered now in the Torah. This brings us to the end, basically, of the Torah um, and towards the end of this lesson here. But just a little summary. We saw in, uh, before the days of Abraham, the pre-paratical period of time here, in, in back in Genesis, that one, the Messiah would be human. Just hitting some key points here as we just close this out. The Messiah would be human. That's in Genesis chapter 3. The Messiah would be God. That's Genesis chapter 9, verse 27. But during the time of Abraham, the, um, the patriarch Abraham, that time period, we see in that the Messiah would, be a, um, would bless all the nations of the world. 
That's Genesis 12, 3 that we covered. We also have seen that the Messiah would come from Judah in Genesis 29 and through 30, we see this. And now we come to the Mosaic period of time, and as the Torah concludes here, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we come to the end of this, and we saw that the Messiah comes after the Greek Empire, um, and as Edom and Moab are being destroyed, all this happens in that time frame, and that was in Numbers chapter 24, and the thing is, that is exactly when Jesus comes. And, And what we've just seen now in this last prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, the Messiah is going to function very much as Moses did. Well, that takes us to the end of the Pentateuch as we've walked through these now. And I hope you've enjoyed this. And as we approach next, we're going to go to Joshua. And um, actually, the next lesson is going to have quite a few books in it because we start hitting just, uh, instead of major long prophecies, we and until we get to the book of Psalm, we're going to have just little short ones that we're going to be running through. But um, I hope you join me again as we continue this um, fascinating journey of the uh, messianic prophecies, the road to Emmaus, as I call this. It is amazing getting to see how Jesus fulfills these prophecies written hundreds of years, uh, in this case, over a thousand years before he was born, yet it all fills, fill, uh, fills out perfectly in the time frame and what he does. It is amazing, and I hope you're enjoying this. So, uh, until we meet again, please take care and God bless. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. And help us keep this broadcast free. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. If you would like to hear Michael live, you can also check out our bookings calendar at evidenceforfaith.org or book your own event with Michael. So this is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.